Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason. And today on Good God, we're going to be talking about the relationship between religion, spirituality, and science in conversation about the global ecological crisis that we are facing. And I think this is an important topic because it seems that scientists and leaders don't often talk with each other. They talk about each other. Sometimes they ignore each other. But each of us, whether we're coming at this matter from a faith perspective or from a scientific perspective, are experiencing the changing climate that is causing havoc with our way of life on this planet. The very language of an existential crisis is often overdone because we seem to make everything into an existential crisis, whether this bill passes or that, whether our party wins or loses, whether democracy is preserved or not. And there's arguments to be made about that. But the future of human life on this planet is dependent upon whether there's a planet to have life on. And increasingly, what we find is that the planet's climate change, which sometimes is referred to as global warming, but better as climate change, where what we have is a greater volatility of climate, increasing cold and storms and the like, and increasing heat and the conflict between the two that gives us storms. This is creating an existential crisis that is has economic implications and has all sorts of implications about immigration, migration. And so what we find is this is a matter that is underneath every other matter, it seems. But how do we talk about it? How do we think about it? And certainly, how do we solve it? When religion speaks one language and science speaks another, Sometimes it's hard for us to hear one another, and there has to be a growing fluency between religion and science that will allow us to hear from one another and to engage together in solutions on this matter. I'm going to be talking now in this podcast with Dr. Robert Hunt, who is the Director of Global Theological Education and the Director of the Center for Evangelism at SMU's Perkins School of Theology. He is a real voice of understanding in both science and religion, and has lived on all corners of this planet, and has bumped up against people of different faith traditions, and embraced them, and engaged them, and he is the perfect person to talk about this matter with today. And he will also be moderating a conference coming up on November 1st that I'll tell you about at the end of the program. So without further ado, let's have our conversation with Dr. Robert Hunt. Well, we're here now with Dr. Robert Hunt. Again, we're grateful that you're back on Good God with us, Robert, and this time to have a conversation about religion and science, particularly maybe addressing role of religion and science and its application to our global ecological crisis. So thanks for joining me for this conversation. 
Very happy to be with you, George. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about the conference itself and why it came about. You'll be moderating the panelists, the speakers. And how did you get involved and, and who's sponsoring it and all those sorts of things? <laughs> okay, well, the sponsors of this conference are the Museum of World Religions. And through one of their one of their leaders, Dr. Maria Habito, I've had quite a long relationship with Shifu, who is their spiritual leader, and the organization itself, going well, actually all the way back to 2008, when they sponsored a, were one of the sponsors or participants in an interfaith dialogue conference in Madrid. So the Museum of World Religions is a Buddhist effort to develop respect among all the world's religions and to apply that respect to contemporary social issues. And I was approached to moderate this symposium, to host it physically on the Perkins campus, although a good deal of it will be virtual, by the Museum of World Religions, so that they could bring to bear different faith perspectives on the current ecological crisis that we're facing. And that's basically how it got started. Well, and in full disclosure, Maria Habito is a member of the board of Faith Commons, the group that is sponsoring Good God in one of our programs. So in any case, it's a pleasure to be able to talk about that and to support what Maria is up to. We should mention that Maria is actually a Roman Catholic, but as many people probably aren't fully aware, to be Catholic does not mean that you can't also be a practicing Buddhist meditation and the like. And she has been a real leader in the confluence of those traditions. Right. Yes, you can be a Buddhist practitioner, which does not have to do with your faith commitments. Right. So, Robert, you are particularly interested in the relationship between religion and culture. This is a special interest of yours, having been a missionary, for one thing, and being a director of Global Theological Center and whatnot. So you have developed a, a particular role and voice, I would say, in the academy and among Christians in particular particular, about the importance of paying attention to culture, not just cultures when you go across seas and find yourself in other places, but even the fact that in the United States, we have various cultures, too, that we need to pay attention to. But there's kind of fluency that is probably called for also between the cultures of religion and science. And that's really what's taking place in this conference. So could you talk to me about those two cultures a little bit and how their history has worked and how important it is to learn the languages of each in order for them to relate to one another? Yes, well, thank, thanks. I think that's a really good question. And I'm, I'll start with what I think we all know, which is the culture of science as we know it today really begins with the Enlightenment and the developing new human understandings of how you grasp 
reality. And part of that grasp of reality was to set aside religious revelation and focus on what could be studied directly, what could be measured, what could be rationally operated on with not only one person's mind, but all minds. And so mm -hmm. science begins to carve out a place for itself in the understanding of nature and reality that rather intentionally excludes religious revelation. It, it hopes to free itself in that way to pursue a different kind of understanding. That doesn't mean, of course, that religious culture disappears within the West, within Europe, the United States, not at all. But it does mean that the cultures of the West and any culture that is touched by science and modernity now needs to begin to adjust to the fact that there is this alternative culture of knowing, we could say, an alternative way of knowing the world and how it's going to relate to that. And I have to say, at the same time, science as a culture eventually is going to have to figure out how it's going to deal with religious ways of knowing the world. And that's really only developed in the last 30 years. We can talk about that a bit. But I think the key thing here is that, yes, science and modernity do develop a kind of a secular social situation as an alternative way of knowing and understanding our world. And equally important, then, that our religious cultures, and we have more than one in the United States, in some way have all developed in response to that rise of scientific knowing, sometimes antagonistically, sometimes right, acceptingly. Right, right but always having to think about it. Yeah. Right. So Stephen Jay Gould, the famous scientist and academician, used the phrase non-overlapping magisteria to describe these two ways of knowing. And really, I think a lot of people at one stage of this conversation bought into that that there's a way of knowing that is religious and a way of knowing that is scientific, and they have no correspondence to one another. Right. That's been challenged, I think, recently. It, Michael Polanyi and others have talked about how there is a sense in which ev everything starts from a kind of apprehension of something and a further testing of it whether it's uh, by observation or revelation, you might say, and that they all proceed in that way. In your experience, Robert, is there, is there a place in these conversations where people are learning to find commonality instead of just state the differences? Well, I think there, there is a place, and in some sense, there has always been a place. There was never a bright line between these supposedly non-overlapping domains. Um, we could go back a long way, but maybe we'll take it only back about 50 years or so, when there was the discovery of the Big Bang. And I could go into great depth on this, but I won't. Let's just say that the evidence became overwhelming in the late 1960s that the universe began with a Big Bang. And that the nature of what we knew about that demonstrated that as scientists try to understand the period of the beginning or right before the beginning, they lose their tools. That is to say, 
the tools that science has to try to observe the beginning are gone. And, and therefore, there's multiple kinds of speculation, but they are not strictly speaking scientific. Um, right. So even at that time, Robert Jastrow, head of astronomy department, which I was studying in at the University of Texas, is quoted as saying that we astrophysicists, people, cosmologists, are like a group of mountain climbers who thought that we had just reached the peak and we were going to pull ourselves over and see everything. And when we pulled ourselves over, we discovered that we've just come to a ledge, not the top of the mountain, and sitting on the ledge are a group of theologians and philosophers who have been there for a thousand years. Right, right. Um, this begins to be the first kind of nod from cosmologists that there's a problem with the non-overlapping domains. Right. So just more recently, if I can say, then philosophers like Marcel Gleisner have pointed out that these domains are maybe encompassing of one another in some way. And so I think if I'm not quoting exactly, but Gleisner says, I'm happy to work within the island of knowledge, which is the title of one of his books. But I recognize that the island of knowledge, even as it grows, never encompasses all there is to be known. Right, right. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's always been some dangers in this way of reckoning this. For example, you know, Jastrow's comment could lead to kind of God of the gaps approach mm -hmm. to things, right? So we, we now have a scientific way of understanding things. We recognize that religion has been, maybe has something to offer where science falls off and doesn't have an answer. And mm -hmm. so God is found in the gaps of our scientific knowledge. But once you do that, then you open yourself to the, the player. When science reorients itself around a different model, and that gap no longer exists, where has your religion gone? You know, you're sort of in, in danger of that. And then you also have the matter of, for those who would say, well, there are different ways of knowing, but there's an objective way for science and there's a subjective way for, for faith. And so religion ends up being privatized in such a way that it can't really contribute to the question. It can only talk about human meaning perhaps, but it can't really talk about possible contributions to the way of knowing the world, which in a sense is, is also part of religion's claim, is that it is a way of knowing the world too. So we're still working all of this out. And I think that's part of what this kind of symposium is about, right? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, your comment about God of the gaps is very much to point. The gaps either get smaller and disappear or they move which leaves right. theologians running around chasing one or the other places to insert themselves into the conversation, which is not very helpful and doesn't do justice to what religion and revelation claim to be. Right. I think the one approach to this is to look to Pagliani himself, who points out that communities of knowing have their legitimate ways of knowing reality. They don't, they sometimes don't speak the same language, but that doesn't mean that one has to squeeze itself into the other. So science doesn't need to squeeze itself into religious knowing any more than religious knowing needs to squeeze itself 
into science. <laughs> the term that I would prefer, and I draw a little bit of this from Gleisner, is that between the kind of knowledge that religious people have and the kind of knowledge that scientific people have is an infinite fractal boundary. And so each one grows into the other at points and informs the other at points, but neither one can exclude the other from itself if it's going to have a full knowledge of reality. And I think that's yeah. a, maybe a helpful metaphor, but this does get us to the point of this symposium, which is to look for the ways in which science and these religions can inform each other about what is an easily recognizable crisis, which is the ecological yeah. crisis. And a lot of that crisis has been exacerbated by the fact that religious people or people in general who are suspicious of science have not wanted to see the evidence before their eyes. Yeah. And so the, and by the way, the extent to which have chosen to not communicate this crisis, but rather to dismiss religious concerns as irrelevant. If I can use an anecdote, Adam Frank, who visited our campus a few years ago, pointed out that for scientists to, say, to show a picture of a polar bear and say that because the Arctic is warming, the polar bears may disappear, isn't an effective way of communicating to people who live in Texas and whose only knowledge of polar bears is that they're there somewhere. We're, right. you know, scientists have not always communicated that there's an existential and indeed religious and spiritual reason for caring about climate change. Yes. Maybe the last who really did that was Carl Sagan. Interesting, yeah. yeah. So let's look at it from the religious side for a moment. And when we're talking about the ecological crisis, I think it's, it's probably important, and I speak as a Christian now, not for other religions, but we have a, an important work to do, it seems to me, to be self-critical about our faith based upon our biblical tradition and the like, in that we haven't always been honest about how much we have assumed a, 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 the findings of science while claiming biblical authority. For example, we might have a situation like what is presented in the Psalms, where it seems clear that David, as a psalmist, for instance, thought of the world as a three-tiered universe, and that the world was in the middle, and that the heavens were moving, that it was moving across the heavens, and that above that was a sea being held in place by the firmament, thus it's blue up there, and that sort of thing. So what we have is an ancient world cosmology that most people today, people of faith, would say, no, we understand that they didn't understand what we know now in a post-Copernican world about it being a heliocentric universe. And yet, we haven't really necessarily then engage science on this matter as having a real 
moral voice to speak to faith today about the ecological crisis. And so I think it's important for us to be honest that when we say we have a biblical view, well, we've been adapting our biblical view across time, sometimes reluctantly, but it's important for us to continue to do that in engaging with science, isn't it? Well, I agree it completely is. And it's interesting where we try to draw our lines as people of, of faith. So yes, we've accepted that the earth revolves around the sun, at least most of us have. We don't think it's flat anymore, at least most of us don't. We've begun to think that germs are real, that you know, that these all of these things that modern science has brought us are real things. But when it threatens what we think of as key to our religious imagination, then we get very antsy. And so this happens with issues about sex and sexuality where modern biological science is deeply threatening to some religiously held viewpoints. And it happens with regard, I think, to ecology and the earth, where we still somehow believe that this is a God-built system that humans really can't mess up. And so, right. you know, God and God's providence will make things right. Or alternatively, and there's surprising number of people here in Dallas, Texas, who believe this, God will come rescue us at the last minute and take us yeah. up to heaven before the world turns to fire. So that, now I have to say the same, at the same time, I'm, I'm an avid reader of Scientific American. Just have some of the same problems with the idea mm -hmm. that as bad as this crisis is, we, the scientists and the engineers will fix it. Yes, we have the techniques. We just we you know, we have to fix it or we will fix it. And mm -hmm. neither of these viewpoints, I think, really can hold water. Right. We need to be in conversation with each other and about this. And realistically in conversation. Let me give an example from Martin Luther. Luther was asked about the end of times, which mm -hmm. in Luther's time must have been seemed near. The Turks were knocking at the door of Europe with the Islamic faith. And in the same period of time, of course, European Christianity is breaking up and dissolving. And Luther's answer was, and this gets echoed later by C.S. Lewis, Luther's answer was, on the world's last night, if my job is to plant trees, I want to be found planting trees. Nice. Now, Whatever you believe about God's providence or the end of the world, if it's our job to care for the earth, and that is quite clearly stated in Scripture, we need to be caring for the earth. That's our responsibility, not to quote Christian Scripture, figuring out the day and the hour when it will end. Well, you say that, and yet it's not, I think, universally agreed upon that is a Christian's duty in that. There are forms of Christianity that have a vision of the end times that says that the earth will be destroyed in a ball of fire, and that is the future that God has planned for the earth, right. and hum certain humans will be saved from it because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But how do we help those who have this apocalyptic view of the end times that is not friendly to earth care and to our global environment. I mean, 
these are fellow persons of faith. And I think obviously dismissing them out of hand is certainly not an appropriate way to do so. It is an interpretation of scripture, a view of Christian responsibility. How do we engage them in a way that helps this existential crisis not to that theology? Right. Well, I'm going I'm to add, this is a you know, I grew up in Dallas. This is a distinctly Christian problem, but it's also a distinctly Muslim problem. There's an apocalyptic view in Islam that's quite popular right now. It's, it can become a distinctly Jewish problem, surprisingly. A lot of Christian apocalypse is rooted in Jewish teaching. And by the way, it can be a Buddhist problem from a slightly different perspective, right? If the world is an illusion, then who cares what happens? There you go. You know? Right, right. So now the question of communication, I tend to want to take this from two perspectives, and both of them are more, one, one is rational and one is emotional, right? And we have to choose the means of communication. The rational one would be to say, can you take a longer view, right? The longer view for me would be to say that I was first exposed to the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture back when I was in high school. So that would have been in the 1970s. That was an extremely popular view here in Dallas among many Christians. Absolutely. And, and so we were pretty much assured that our lifetimes would not go on very much longer before Jesus came again. I met this again when I was a missionary in the Philippines, where there were Christian groups teaching this sort of pre-tribulation rapture doctrine that Filipinos could expect that this would happen in the in within years actually within days it didn't happen it didn't happen in the 1990s it didn't happen when the EU expanded and now we're in 2222 and if i had made my decisions based on the idea that the world will end then they might have been foolish i might never have married right yes. And I think, so as, if I would reason with my fellow Christians, I would say, isn't this why Jesus tells us you will not know the day or the hour so that we can get on with our work? And that's right. a very clear message for Jesus. It's coming, but you don't know the day or the hour. So get on with your work, right? Now, the more emotional thing I would say is if my if my parents' generation had acted in that way and had, for example, not been socially responsible with regard to pollution and the Environmental Protection Act, then the, then the world in which I would be raising my children would be a horror show. Yes. So can we not think about our grandchildren? Since we don't know the day or the hour, <laughs> Can we not say, let's try to take care of the next generation and the generation after that as just responsible, decent parents and grandparents? And if God comes again, okay. But well, I agree with both sides of that, both the rational and the emotional. Uh, I think I struggle with the fact that when you take this apocalyptic view that is by its very nature, uh, not friendly to uh, the preservation of the earth and mm -hmm. whatnot. In fact, 
to some degree, some in this theology believe that they may be agents of helping God to accomplish that yes. uh, mm -hmm. in that manner. We end up with now a, increasingly people in with this religious perspective in the quarters of power making yeah. decisions. So it, this goes back to my remembrance of the Secretary of the Interior during the Reagan administration, James Watt, yeah. who held this theological perspective and thought that clear-cutting the forests and open-pit coal mines were all fine because, you know, Christ was coming back and the we are to have dominion over the earth, by which he meant, or believed God meant in the scripture, that the earth is simply raw materials for the happiness of human beings as long as we are here. And so it, it was religiously validated. I guess I'm still struggling with whether there's any hope for that kind of care for the environment until we have some breakthrough about the religious perspective in, in that worldview that is now becoming more and more prominent in our politics. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's a really good question, but I'm going to parse a little bit. I okay. think Christians by and large, at least all those I've met, and I teach in a lot of different churches, are quite receptive to talking about what the scripture teaches, if you know the scripture well enough to do it. And I taught in evangelical schools for 15 years. I'll go mano y mano on the Bible anytime. So I think Christians are very receptive to that. I think we're going to find that almost no matter what we do, politicians are not. And the, mm -hmm. I don't mean to diss them entirely, but politicians use these views as a means of garnering a certain kind of voter that they want to get or creating a certain, certain emotional state. And they're not going to relinquish the, they're not going to relinquish their views so long as it's politically useful. Right. And there we come to simply the hardcore political fact that politicians will change when they get voted out or when they think they will. That's what right. they understand. So there's a twofold thing here. I think we need to talk lovingly and convincingly to our Christian brothers and sisters about what it says in the book of Genesis, what Jesus actually teaches, right, mm -hmm. about creation care. And at the same right. time, I think we need to be political realists and and bring to bear the power of voting against people whose political positions are antithetical to the flourishing of our humanity. Okay, and flourishing of our humanity really depends also upon our habitat of humanity. And that's what this ecological right. exactly is right. about. And so uh, here we are. Now, I think as we wind down our time together, Robert, I, I want to say that it, during the Obama administration, it was interesting to me that he made the case that the most important political issue of our time is climate change, is global environmental crisis. Mm -hmm. And yet it was difficult for him to get much traction during his administration mm -hmm. about that, as it still is, of course. Mm -hmm. And I think for the general voting public, uh, it's hard to get people's attention about how to prioritize this matter in the long list of things that people attend to 
with regard to voting. So you and I both know that time after time, it's the economy stupid, as we, mm -hmm. we learned back in the administration. So people really want to vote their pocketbook. And right now, inflation and things mm -hmm. like that are high on people's level of concern. But then there, there are matters of social justice. There are matters of reproductive rights. There are matters of education and what's taught in the schools and these sorts of things. Generally, whose view of America will right now. How do we get this matter that is a concern for every human being on this planet to rise up the list of concerns for people so that it we can attend to other things afterward if we have a planet we can live on, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree that it's a problem. I will say this, we're in one sense, this will only happen when we as individual voters experience in our own lives the result of this crisis. And as long as we're insulated from it or insulate ourselves from it, then, then it's going to be hard to get us to respond. Let's, that doesn't mean, however, that we can't be educated a little bit. We're currently worried about inflation, okay? As we certainly should be worried about inflation. I think there's an educational task involved in pointing out that if we have a series of category and four or five hurricanes that hit populated parts of the United States, that we will bankrupt ourselves on insurance. Yes. But, you know, yeah, I know by federal government standards, $500 billion doesn't seem like a lot, but it actually is, yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. And then the supply chain is interrupted. And That's then. Right. Prices go up, and we have also inflation is a global factor now. Why is it a global factor? Well, a lot of reasons, but among them, climate, right? Well, we saw the spikes in gas prices when we had hurricanes that hit the Gulf Coast and destroyed a significant part of the refining capability. So th these become unfortunate but teachable moments. But there's a a bigger thing, too, where people of faith need to speak of these things, importantly speak of these things, from the pulpit, in the synagogue, from the minbar, in the mosque, to remind right. people of what's going on. Right. So to, to the last question, that I think this is something that we like in Faith Commons to ask all of our guests. Uh, yeah. As we conclude, you know, what are you as a person of faith from your faith tradition, Robert? What are you discovering lately or learning right now that is helping you promote the common good in this current climate we find ourselves in? You know, I think in the academic world that I've lived in for the last 40 or more years, Eco-theology or theology related down to the spirituality of creation care is really not new. This has been going on for 30 years plus. So I have to say that there's not a great deal new that I'm learning about that. I think what's what I'm learning that's new is, and especially since I've been back in the United States now for 17 years, is that there are in fact people of faith who are more and more concerned and more and more attentive to this. And that 
building the coalitions of these people of faith, many of whom are in conservative churches, many of whom are, you know, have not otherwise been particularly involved in what they would see as liberal causes, are beginning to see that. And so to animate them rather than to reject them Good. is critical. I think the second thing is we know now from studies of Gen Z, I'll promote my own podcast on interfaith, um, that Gen Z is deeply concerned about this issue. Yes. And Gen Z is also deeply spiritual, but not religious. Yes. And so this suggests a confluence that religious people who have the resources to build communities and to help with education really need to reach out to Gen Z and capture that energy and effectiveness, which is looking for a place to go in relationship to precisely this issue. Yes. Leaves me quite hopeful. And I think that's where we can go with this. There are good people of faith that are interested. We're going to see some of them in the seminar. And we have a huge generation that's intensely interested. We just need to capture their imagination and be partners with them. Wonderful. Well, as always, so much more light than heat that you have given us on a challenging subject that is sometimes controversial and sometimes just not talked about enough. And so we hope to remedy that partly through this podcast, but always through your work and everywhere you go. Robert Hunt, thank you for being you. again on Good God. Thank you very much, George. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Good God about religion and science and the ecological crisis that we are facing. I want to invite you to follow up about this by attending, if you are in Dallas or can make it here, this conference called the Globe, Confronting Our Global Ecological Crisis, Religion, Spirituality, and Science in Conversation. It will be 7 to 9 p.m. on Tuesday night, November the 1st, and it will be at the Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University in Prothro Great Hall. That's just off of Bishop Boulevard, right sort of next to Highland Park United Methodist Church, and parking is available in the Meadows Museum across the street at, on Bishop Boulevard. So I hope that you'll be able to attend. There will be numerous speakers from different religious traditions. This program is being sponsored by the Museum of World Religions, and we will have its founder, who will be with us, as well as speakers from the Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, and other religious tradition. And so we hope that you'll be with us for that and interested. It will also be available to log on to online, and we hope that you'll follow up with that too. So thank you for your interest in all these varying subjects that we bring to Good God. If you haven't subscribed to Good God before, I hope that you will do so. Where you get your podcasts specifically Apple Podcasts and YouTube, if you're using the video version of it. You can always sign up at faithcommons.org and subscribe to our newsletter there as well and become a part of this ongoing work of Faith Commons. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.